Reach Young Adult Ministry sermons online from Tuesday, August 8, 2019 by Philip Jackson, pastor to young adults at Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, entitled God is Not a Lucky Charm, from 1 Samuel 4, 1 through 18. We're continuing our series on uh, 1 Samuel. So if you remember, AJ talked last week about um, Eli and Samuel, and we've kind of laid the groundwork for uh, some interesting things that are going on in Israel at this time. So if you remember, uh, we are coming out of the season of the judges and moving into the season of the kings for Israel. And this is an interesting time for them because uh, what's happening is that they've essentially, they have rejected the leadership, God's leadership. They have uh, been living for generations, completely ignoring God's commandments and God's relationship. And so it finally comes to a fever pitch, and the people are so tone deaf, so spiritually tone deaf, that um, they don't know what they don't know. And so uh, they come, to, so this is, this is the last uh, bastion of, of uh, I guess, the last part of God's story with them before he does give them what they want. And so what we've looked at over the last couple of weeks is first God's faithfulness to Hannah and how she prayed and God showed up and he gave her a child and how he went on to bless her, right? We looked at that. We looked at uh, how Eli, as a, as a priest in Shiloh, this is where the Ark of the Covenant was, was housed in this little city of Shiloh. This is before Jerusalem was actually a city uh, in, in Israel. And so Shiloh was kind of the capital city, and so we saw how Eli, as the, uh, as the priest in Shiloh, how he had abdicated his responsibility, and his, his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were just running roughshod over the people, right? They were, they were the, when, the, when women would come to give offerings to the Lord, they would seduce them. They were taking uh, sacrifices inappropriately for their own gain. This was a really dark time. So we're, what we're going to look at this morning or this morning. What we're going to look at this evening is um, kind of, of a, a snapshot of what life was like for the Israelites. So one of the common things, you, you see this people called uh, the Philistines coming in and out of the story of the Israelites. Uh, it's pretty, they're pretty common. So the Philistine Empire uh, settled in western Palestine, which is to the west of where the, the Jews had settled in Canaan. And they began to grow in strength. The thing that made the Palestinians so powerful was that they had discovered how to make, uh, use iron to make steel. And so their weapons were stronger than anyone else's. And so the Philistines were kind of on the cutting edge of technology when it came to weapons. So they began to, to terrorize the, the, the Jewish people. And so as, as their influence begins to grow, that begins to apply pressure to the Israelites. So... So, so Philistine influence begins to grow, and it becomes to be a dangerous thing for the Israelites. So this is before David killing Goliath and all that stuff. So this is kind of the precursor. So as the Philistines grow in influence, they begin to apply pressure to God's people. Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we have one of the first uh, skirmishes with God's people. Okay, And so one of the things that, that we're going to see in this text is that the people of Israel were so spiritually tone deaf that they believed that God was just kind of this lucky charm that they could kind of summon when they wanted what they wanted. And they came up short. 
So let's read what it says. In 1 Samuel 4, we're going to read the first five verses. Check this out. It says, um, Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped at Ebenezer, while the Philistines camped at Aphek. The Philistines lined up in battle formation against Israel as the battle intensified. Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who struck down about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the troops returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh. Then it will go before us and save us from our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh to bring back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Armies, who was enthroned between the cherubim. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So, well, let me read on, verse 5. When the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord entered the camp, all the Israelites raised a loud shout, and the ground shook. So, picture this. You have a people who have been ignoring God for generations, who have no idea why this Ark of the Covenant is so important. They're thinking, oh, well, this, this was a great good luck charm for our ancestors, so we should go get it. It'll up our chances. And so what, what they do is they take these two ungodly priests and they have them lead the procession. They go and get the Ark of the Covenant and they bring it back to the battlefield like it's some sort of a token. This is a picture of what it looks like when people lose touch with God's, with God's Word. Here's the thing, is that Israel was living according to their own priorities, right? For you, there may have been a time in your life where you're just kind of coasting, you're doing your thing, right? I'm not hurting anybody. But the challenge is that life has a way of grinding the humility into you. God's Word says that God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. We've talked about that before. But what the Israelites are about to find out is that God doesn't play games. He doesn't play games. In our response, we've got to make sure that God's our priority. We can't expect, expect God to bless our plans just because we want what we want. See, we live in a generation that has bought into this idea this false Christian idea that somehow God just wants you to be happy. He wants you to have everything that you want. If you want it, you just need to claim it. Pray, Lord, I want to be so successful. I had a guy tell me one time, uh, he was an influencer here in Tulsa, and uh, I guess that's what he was, that's what he called himself. And uh, we sat down for a meeting. And as was, I was working for the congressman at the time, and so my job was to meet people and, and develop relationships. And so I sat down with this guy because I met him at a, at a luncheon or something. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe I can learn some stuff from this guy. And uh, he was a former pastor, now a financial advisor. It seemed like he was doing pretty well for himself. And as we began to discuss faith and as we began to discuss what God was doing, he began to tell me that, oh, well, this is, this is how I see the world. See, for people to want what I have, I've got to put on display things that they will want. So that means that my wife needs to be attractive. That means that I need to drive a car that is worth looking at. I need to have a house that's worth talking about. I need to have successful children. And then he began to tell me about his sons who have already finished their doctorate degrees and graduate degrees, and they've written books and done all this cool stuff. And then he began to tell me that you need to put on the, the air of success so that people will want what you have. But here's the deception. 
is that if you need something else to convince people that the, your way of life it comes with true freedom, your way of life is not really free. If Jesus needs you to put on this air of success, to have a big house, to have a fast car, to have a hot spouse, to make sure that you have beautiful children and have a perfect Instagram following, Jesus doesn't matter. But this is, this is a hard thing to swallow. Because we live in a generation that says, oh no, yeah, you need to do this. You need to do that. You need to do these things. That way people will think, oh, that's, that's somebody worthy of following. But Jesus said, those who are last will be first. And those who are first will be last. The greatest of you is a servant. In my quiet times this last week, it was interesting because I was reading in Mark, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is talking about uh, being a servant. And it was an interesting observation because uh, he makes the comment about how everything uh, that is, everything will contain salt, essentially. He says everything has, has salt and, and light. I've, I've read this my whole life. Grew up in the church, right? And uh, began to think about this idea of salt. And he said, you're going you're gonna to be poured out like salt. And I thought, that doesn't make any sense. What does that mean? So I turned back to a cross-reference in my Bible to Leviticus chapter 2, I think it is. And what I didn't know was that whenever they gave a grain offering at the temple, the grain offering had to be salted. Think about that. Salt is a preservative, especially in the ancient world. In order for you to be salt to your culture, you have to be a sacrifice. Think about that in the context of what Jesus said. If anyone must, will follow me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Paul says, you must, you must live your life as a living sacrifice. This whole idea of me setting my plans and asking God to bless it is not only wrong, but it's unbiblical. It's not right. It's ungodly. The challenge is that we build our whole lives on these assumptions. See, most people, they think that the only thing that God is there for is to get them into heaven. But the truth is that the reason that heaven is heaven is because we have a relationship with Jesus. And if that's the case, and if I have a relationship with Jesus right now, that means that heaven starts right now. Because don't think that heaven is about me getting there and having this giant house and having all this stuff. It's not. The beautiful thing about heaven is that we get Jesus unfiltered. We get God unfiltered. And so what happens is we get a chance to experience God in spite of the struggles of today. If you're waiting for you're waiting for the hammer to drop about heaven, if you're waiting to live for Christ until heaven, you're going to miss it. Because the point of heaven is not stuff. The point of heaven is not the pearly gates. It's not the crystal sea. It's not the golden streets. The point of heaven is Jesus. These people are playing games with God. So after their plan failed... Then they try to get God's blessing by borrowing the faith of their ancestors. Look at what it says in verses 3 and 4. It says, And the troops returned to the camp. When they returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? Let us, let us bring the ark, of the, Lord, sorry, the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh. Then it will go with us and save us from our enemies. See, here's the thing. These people don't care about God. They don't. 
They don't care about living godly lives. They don't care about being obedient. They don't care about sacrificing themselves. What they care about is what God can do for me. Have you guys ever heard anybody say that? Subtly, I can't. God wants me to have this. I know it. I know it because God wants me to have it. Well, how do you know? When was the last time you had a quiet time? Well, I don't really do quiet times. I've been in the church my whole life. I kind of know it all. Chances are, if you haven't been spending time in God's Word, you have no clue what God's will is because you don't know Him. So you have evil religious men leading an apostate crowd. An apostate, apostate is just a fancy word for saying people who had faith and they gave it up. They gave it up for temporary things. So you have these evil religious leaders leading an apostate crowd, taking something that's godly into battle, saying, God, do what I want you to do because you're a cosmic ATM. In the last couple of weeks, we've had several, you might call them faith leaders, come out and make statements that they were leaving their faith behind. The problem is that when you truly chase Jesus, when you truly experience life, at the hands of Jesus, everything else pales in comparison. We have this idea in our generation that somehow having a relationship with God is all about feeling good. Having a relationship with God is about being holy, as He is holy. That means that I have to change. There has to be an impetus to change. The problem is that in God's will, there's victory, but in our own will, there's, there's defeat every single time. God's not a trinket. Look at what it says. Continue in verse 6. The Philistines heard the sound of war, of the war cry, and asked, What's this loud shouting in the Hebrews' camp? When the Philistines discovered that the, that the ark of the Lord had entered the camp, they panicked. A God has entered their camp, they said. Woe to us, nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who will rescue us from these magnificent gods. These are the gods that slaughtered the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Show some courage and be men, Philistines. Otherwise, you'll serve the Hebrews just as they served you. Now be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And each man fled to his tent. The slaughter was severe, 30,000 of the Israelites' foot soldiers fell. The ark, of the, the ark was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they died. Look at how the Philistines respond. God already has a reputation. We forget. We think that, that we have to be all that in order for God to use us, but the truth is that He has His own reputation. The truth is that He doesn't need me. As great as I think that I am, as smart as I think that I am, as put together as I think that I am, he doesn't need me. Because otherwise, what happens is, I elevate myself to the point of being irreplaceable. But what does God's word say about the proud? He doesn't just let the proud stumble. He resists the proud. God already has a reputation, and the, and the Philistines know this. And here's the other thing. We talked about last week how this prophet came to Eli and he said, Listen, your sons are a mess. They're an absolute train wreck. It's a dumpster fire down there. Okay, you're letting these guys run roughshod over the people. And God has been watching. 
And guess what? Judgment day is here. So what's going to happen? Your sons are going to die soon. You're going to die soon. And God has told me that he's going to take your family tree and he's going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And the people of Israel that you're leading, because of your bad leadership, men will die. He says that in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, 27-36. So this is a fulfillment of that prophecy. See, but the thing about it is that our reputation is tied to Christ. God will make a point. He will make a point to show that He is God and we are not. The problem here is that the Israelites forgot who was actually fighting the battle. They thought, okay, well, God's just this... this uh, token that I'm going to take in the battle, right? This, some sort of a magic rabbit's foot that I'm going to rub. How many times do we do this? Okay, God, here's the deal. This is what I want to do. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get this degree, and I'm going to tell you how you can kind of help me get there. And uh, it's going to be great. I'm going to get this job when I'm done in four years, and I'm going to have this life. I'm going to be married, I'm going to have children, I'm going to have all this stuff, right? I'm going to drive a fast car, I'm going to have what I want. So this is my plan, so bless it. But how many times do we have that conversation with God, and then once we say amen, we immediately go into a panic attack, where we're like, I don't know how to do this. What if I choose the wrong degree? What if I choose the wrong, wrong career? What if I get the wrong job? What if I marry the wrong person? You see the subtle deception in these things? That it's all up to me? See, pride and fear come from the same root idea, the idea that I am in control, that everything hinges on me, right? Pride says, I'm awesome. I can do this. I am so smart. I am great. I'm creative. I'm funny. I'm attractive. I'm going to be fine. Fear, on the other side, says, I can't do this. Everything depends on me. I'm not smart enough. I'm not funny enough. I'm not good-looking enough. I don't know how to do this. Everything depends on me. See, they both have that same root idea that everything depends on me. But God says that he gives grace to the humble. So you have these people who don't understand who's the one actually doing the fighting. See, We've got to come to the place where we're okay with not being the one calling the shots. Let me ask you a question. You go to an art museum, you go to the Gilcrease of the Philbrook here in town, right? And you see a beautiful painting. Who do you give the credit to? To the paintbrush or to the artist? The artist. Because to give credit to the paintbrush is absurd. That's the thing about us. We are the paintbrush. To take any kind of credit or any kind of glory from what God uses us to do is just simple pride. Man, this hurts. Because I, I, I want to be important. I want to make a difference. When I die, I'll be honest with you, I want there to be a vacuum where I was. I want people to miss me. I want my funeral to be packed out. I will be honest with you. 
But what I've realized is that if I try to manipulate my way to be an influence, every single time I am a bad influence. But when I let go and I let God do the driving, the influence comes and it's not something to be forced. We are simply his instruments. And here's the other thing. Look at, look at what happens here in, uh, where is this? It says they kill 30,000. Right here in verse 10. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and each man fled to his tent. The slaughter was severe. 30,000 of the Israelite foot soldiers fell. The first time before they took the ark into the, into the battle, it was 4,000. This time it's 30,000. It's almost eight times the amount. That is huge. Here's the thing. Is that these people were taking the faith of their ancestors and they were trying to claim it as their own? Oh, this worked for them when they were, when they were conquering Canaan, so this must be how it's done. Here's the thing. God's Word is full of events where people tried to borrow someone else's faith and live that out, Satan's favorite thing is to call you out. There was a guy who, was, uh, who tried to cast out demons. He tried to cast out a demon in the name of Paul. Actually, he said, uh, I believe he said, in the name of Paul, um, also in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out of this guy, right? This is the Philip paraphrase. What did the guy do? The demon-possessed guy literally stripped the guy naked and beat him to a pulp, and he ran away naked. Satan loves to call out fake people. See, the Israelites in this story, what they were doing is they were borrowing faith from their ancestors. Oh, well, this is how it works. This is the formula. Doot, doot, doot. I'm going to put in ones and zeros and think that we're going to come up with an equation. Oh, this is how God works. But it comes down to a relationship with God. It doesn't, God doesn't care about the stuff that we do. It's about us. He wants us. What you bring to the table is irrelevant. He wants you. That's why in Psalm 139 he says that he wove you together in your mother's womb, piece by piece. That he orchestrated the days ahead of you, and he knew all of them before any of them were. He knows you're rising up and you're going to bed. Where can I go from your presence, Lord? I cannot escape you. If I go to the, to the heights of heaven, you are there. If I go to the depths of hell, you are there. If I go to the farthest reaches of the earth, there you will find me. Because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I've been made on purpose for a purpose. God wants you. He doesn't want your stuff. He doesn't want your talent. He doesn't want your linguistic skills. He doesn't want your money. He wants your obedience. Because in your obedience, you get to know Him. The heaviest part of this story is that these are God's people. And they take his reputation, his divine reputation, and they drag it through the mud because they base him into being just a trinket, something to be used, to be manipulated, to get what they want. God, here's my plan. Oh, this worked for my dad, so I guess this is what we're going to do. It's not how this works. It's not how any of this works. 
But the prophecy goes further. So not only this is a fulfilled promise, but we see that this isn't a game. So now we're going to look at Eli. Starting in verse 12, it says this. It says, That same day, the Benjamite man ran from the battle and came to Shiloh. His clothes were torn and there was dirt on his head. That's a, sh- that's a sign of, of grief. Back in the Old Testament, they would, do, they, would take, they would take dirt or ashes and they would rub it on their heads and over their faces to show that they were upset. They were grieved in some major way. His clothes were torn and there was dirt on his head. Verse 13, when he arrived, there was Eli sitting in his chair beside the road watching because he was anxious about the ark of God. See, here's the thing about Eli. He knows this is coming. He knows this is coming. Because he's been watching his sons rebel and he didn't have the courage to stand up and do his job. So he knows this is coming. So he's anxious. He's, he's saying, okay, it used to be it was just my sons involved in this. Now the ark is at stake. Oh my goodness, the, the career that I protected. It's about to go down. Because he was anxiously watching the ark. Middle of verse 13. When the man entered the city to give a report, the entire city cried out. Eli heard the outcry and asked, Why this commotion? The man quickly came and reported to Eli. Verse 15. At that time, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes didn't move because he couldn't see. The man said to Eli, I'm the one who came from the battle. I fled from, the here to, from there today. What happened, my son? Eli asked. The messenger answered, Israel has fled from the Philistines, and also there was a great slaughter among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are both dead, and the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off the chair by the city gate, and since he was old and heavy, his neck broke and he died. Eli had judged Israel for 40 years. What a, what a period at the end of the sentence. So, last week, we had a student, a 10th grader, who um, had been dealing with some issues. And uh, last Wednesday night, he found a bunch of uh, opioids stolen from his grandfather, and he took them last Wednesday night to try to kill himself. So, he laid there from midnight until his parents tried to get him to wake him up to go to school, first day of school at Mingo. And they discovered him, rushed him to the hospital. He only had a heartbeat. And he's been in the ICU at St. Francis for six days. I understand that in our South Tulsa cushy bubble, that the idea of Satan being real is kind of like the boogeyman underneath the bed. It's like, nah. It's kind of, I, I, can, I can see how he could possibly be real. This young man began to believe lies about himself. And he began to take those lies that weren't true and plant them in his soul. Those lies began to reproduce themselves. See, fruit is not just an indication of life. It's also the power of reproduction. So more fruit begets more fruit, which begets more fruit, which begets more fruit, which eventually you have a lot. And what you begin to accept in one moment becomes a half-truth the next moment. And the next moment you cannot escape it because it's all of your reality. 
Listen to me, young adults. This is not a game. This is not a game. This story is just one of many. Satan is real and he hunts. He hunts us and he hates us. We are some of the most wealthy people in the world just because we have a warm place to sleep at night. We get into an air-conditioned box with wheels. We drive to an air-conditioned job most of the time. We get out of our car. We go to work. We have the Internet. We carry the Internet in our pocket. We can ask Siri any question we want. And yet, did you know that we live in a time, the 20th century, last century, is the bloodiest century on history for people being killed for their faith. There are parts of the world where Christians are drugged out of their homes. Their women are put into slavery today. They are raped and murdered. The men are beheaded or they're put in cages and set on fire or drowned in rivers. And yet for us, we're worried about the $5 we need for Chick-fil-A. Understand this truth. That chasing Jesus is a dangerous business. Satan is playing for keeps. Jesus is playing for keeps. We cannot do this halfway. We can't do it. Not just because here's the super Christians over here, here's the people who are mailing it in over here, we all get to heaven, so what does it matter? The truth is that Satan hunts. This is a hard thing for us because we, ha- we are infected with a disease in America. Everyone has it. It's called affluenza. We are so freaking comfortable. Meanwhile, a 15-year-old kid will take as many pills as he can just to shut it off. We're playing for keeps. What these people didn't realize at this time, they thought, oh, well, this this God thing, this is kind of convenient. He'll give me what I want. I want that job. So I'm going to pray for that job. I want that degree, so I'm going to pray for that degree. I'm going to pray. I'm, I, I need this thing. I'm going to pray for this thing. And yet they never ask, God, will you teach me to want what you want? Satan's plan for keeps. And if you're living right now ignoring the enemy, you're in a dangerous place. You are in a very dangerous place. And it could be, if there's no opposition in your life, it could be that you're not a threat. Have you ever thought about that? If there's no opposition in your life, if there's no struggle, if there are no challenges, maybe the devil doesn't care about you because you're irrelevant. We are seeing God do incredible things in this church. We are seeing God do incredible things in churches all over the city. At First Baptist in Jinx, at Riverview, at 
Owasso, First Baptist Owasso at Evergreen, we are seeing God move in incredible ways. Is it any wonder that major things are happening to people in this church? Marriages are struggling to hold on. Kids are living in open rebellion to their parents. Teenagers are overdosing on drugs. This is what it means to live the Christian life. Jesus said, you will have opposition. You will, not you might or you could, or if you do these things, you might be able to avoid it. He says, you will. If there's no opposition, opposition in your life, what are you doing to chase Jesus? That's the indication. If there's no conviction in your life, that's an indication that you are not living a godly life. Man, this is, this is heavy. I mean, think about this. Eli spent 40 years, 40 years doing what he thought was God's will for his life, only to come to the end and realize that he had wasted it all. Or maybe the enemy is coming at you. Maybe you are seeing attacks. But what's happened is that you have borrowed faith from your parents. You've never actually truly embraced this idea that you are the one who's responsible for your relationship with Jesus. Maybe, maybe it's, oh, well, everything is going to be fine because, well, this worked out for mom and dad. This is, this is kind of just what we do. There's parallels in the story. Are you picking up what God has done in other people's lives and claiming that for your own because you don't have any real relationship or experience with him? Are you like the Israelites that say, you know what, that's that God thing, all the hard work that you guys did, all the relationship stuff, I get that, that's cool, but I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to take all the good stuff that you did and I'm just going to claim it for myself and I'm not really going to worry about this whole relationship thing or giving anything up. God will not honor that. What's up, everybody? This is Philip Jackson, pastor of young adults at Evergreen Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday evening at 6.30 at Evergreen Church, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. For more information, check out our website, reachtulsa.org. You can connect with us on social media and on Instagram by searching for reach.tulsa. Also, be sure to subscribe to our content for the latest sermons and updates. You can also find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Bring your glory down.